On Tuesday, violent videos started circulating on social media, showing a man brutally beaten and burnt beyond recognition in his car, a Toyota Avanza. An angry mob in Parkwood, Grassy Park, who believed the man was behind rumored kidnappings in the area, were looking for retribution. But in the end, an innocent e-hailing taxi driver, Abongile Mafalala, was murdered, leaving behind a devastated family who claimed the attack was racially motivated. Innocent. Innocent. That's why I even said I will get justice for him, because he was innocent. He was innocent. 100%. I'm 100% sure of it. I'm Amy Gibbings, a journalist for News24's multimedia department, and you're listening to The Story. This week, we'll be talking to News24 reporter Lisa Lee Solomons, who will update us on police investigations into the matter and how Mafalala's family are coping with the tragedy. We'll then hear from Lizette Lancaster from the Institute for Security Studies, who works in the Justice and Violence Prevention Program. She'll talk about mob justice in a South African context, what provokes these actions, and what are the consequences. You're listening to The Story. It's a podcast by News24. We'll speak to journalists and experts about the week's biggest story. This is what we saw, heard and uncovered this week. Thank you for joining me in the studio, Lisa Lee. Thanks, Amy. I know we've had a busy week. Oh, gosh. It was originally reported that an angry mob of about 100 people descended on this car and its three occupants. Two of the men managed to escape and one was beaten and burned. But on Thursday, when the two of us went into Danoon mm-hmm. searching for Abongile's loved ones, we found out what really happened. Can you explain what has emerged in the investigations? So, Amy, what police have told us is that Abongile had been working for an e-hailing taxi company. Um, and on Tuesday morning at around about 6 a.m., he had accepted a ride request from individuals in Parkwood. He then had left the house to go and pick these two um what we now know are two males, um, and then escort them to the the destination where they were going to go to. It then emerged that when Abungili had picked these two guys up, they had then robbed him, dragged him from his vehicle to the nearby bush, and beat him. Upon hearing this noise, residents in the area then rushed to where they could find the noise, and this is when the alleged two two men had then indicated to the residents that this is the guy who has been kidnapping the kids in the area. We now know that there was absolutely no kidnapping reported in the area, and there was nothing of any of any kidnappings happening, um, according to the CPF as well. So um, residents then had then dragged Abongili from the bush and dragged him into the onto the, the open field and then burnt him alongside his vehicle. How was the family alerted to his murder? So, Amy, that's quite interesting. How how the family and and Abungile's girlfriend were notified of this incident was where social media um, had videos and pictures blasted all over its social media platforms like Facebook. Um, where these videos were, were showcasing, you know, what is being done to Abungile. Um, Zandile then said to me that, you know, she had logged onto WhatsApp and immediately had seen a status of Abungile's friend, who is also the, the opposite neighbor um, in Danun, and had seen a post that says, rest in peace, brother. And she had then messaged him immediately asking him, what, what's this all about? 
And um, he didn't respond immediately, she said, but then he, he she called him. And that's when he told her that um, Abengili has, has, was burnt to death by attackers in, in, in the area. I remember um, she was saying yesterday, on Thursday, that the family had found out before her, but they were just too afraid to yes. tell her. They just didn't have the strength to tell her. And that's how she only found out, I think, at 8 p.m. Yes, yes. So... From what we understand is that Zandile and Abungile have been dating for the past four years. They have a beautiful relationship, judging by the pictures that she showed us and the videos that the, the two of them have made um, over the years. So they've got quite a quite a, a great relationship. And it was it was very stressful and daunting for the family to break the news to her because they didn't know how she was going to handle it. They also did, and I quote, that they didn't have the willpower to break the news to her. So that was quite devastating, you know, as she was telling us that while holding back the tears. It was so moving to to be standing in his home with his family Mm -hmm. and just to sort of empathize and imagine what they must be going through. How, How is his girlfriend and family doing at this point? Not only have they lost a loved one, but they have witnessed the tragedy online through all this video content. I mean, it's unfathomable. Oh, it's, it's horrible. So the family are not doing okay, which is expected. Um, we spoke to the two sisters that have been living with Abungile for the past 10 years. So he's originally, they're all originally from um, the Eastern Cape. They had moved to uh, Cape Town and Danoon specifically for uh, the past 10 years. So they've been here quite, quite long. Um, there are five siblings altogether, and Abungile, um, you know, ironically, is the only guy in the house. So they were quite safe around him. Just five females, four females, sorry, and one male. So the family are not doing okay. Um, as we were told on, on Thursday when we visited the family that, you know, they, they couldn't identify the body because the body has been burnt beyond recognition. So they had gone to the mortuary and they couldn't see anything. They couldn't verify him if it was him. They've now, they now have to do DNA testing to see if he actually is the sibling. They obviously know it is him, um, but it's, it's, they're not doing okay. I remember one of the sisters, Bulelwa, saying that you know she hasn't slept um, since, since watching all these videos online and she hasn't eaten. She can't remember the last time she's eaten. And that, that for me was just, you know, it's, it's mesmerizing because, I mean, how, how, do you, how do you live through this knowing what these people have done, you know, to your brother, to your own, your own blood? And on that note, the family is of the opinion that this was racially motivated. Mm. It's a largely colored area. Mm-hmm. And Zandile was saying, you know, there were no black people yes. present and perhaps if there was a black person there they might have intervened but it she feels that it was a very racially motivated attack absolutely um she also said that uh, you know from some of the videos that were posted online a lot of the videos was were, were were colored people speaking afrikaans and she did not understand that and they were asking him questions abungili now they were asking abungili questions in afrikaans and he couldn't he obviously didn't understand what they were saying and she was saying that had there been a black person there and that person would have probably cautioned them and told them, look, guys, let's stop. Let's first find out why is he in the area? What is he doing here? And, and, you know, is he allegedly 
involved in these kidnappings that they say have been happening in the area. Um, Zandile also made mention that, you know, she knows her boyfriend and she knows that had, they, had he given, been given the opportunity to ask, the, to have answered the question that they had, he would have presented the phone to them and tell, tell, show them that he actually accepted a ride to this area and that somebody had requested for him to come and pick them up. As we've now found out, there were these rumors about kidnappings. There were rumors about this Toyota Avanza mm. that had been videoed earlier on in the day or in the week. Mm. And no details were verified. Everyone got onto social media, which really rallied anger and emotion and got everyone together in this sort of mob mentality state for very violent retribution. What is, what are, what is the issue here? So this speaks to the dangers of social media, this specific incident as well. You know, the minute this apparent um, robbers, you know, started indicating that, that, that Abungil was in the area to kidnap um, people, social media went crazy. And the more residents started seeing this video going, going around and seeing that, you know, the, there's, actual, there's a guy in the area that's, that's looking for kids. That's when they all came out in their numbers to go and attack um, Abungil. Not verifying or not, you know going through the right channels to find out if this is actually true. And because of the amount of times that people have been commenting on those videos as it was going around, more residents started coming to where the scene was, to, to where they were in, at the scene. And tell me, you spoke to a resident involved in yes. the attack. Tell me a bit about what he had to say about how he found out about the attack, how he got involved, and then what he even said to God mm. when he looked at Abongile being brutally mutilated. So that is quite interesting and quite emotional as well. So this resident who spoke to, who spoke to me on condition of anonym, anonymity um, then said to me that, you know, he saw the videos on social media, he went to the scene, and when he got to the scene, Abungile was, he was not in a human state. He was, he was mauled, he was, he was burnt beyond recognition. And he stood there and he said, you know, he didn't know um, if this man is guilty or not. He's being burnt for an alleged social media post. And he said, as he stood there, he started shaking his hand and just said, Lord, if it's in your will, if this man is guilty, you'll deal with him. If it's not guilty, accept my apology on behalf of the residents. And then he said he burst out into tears when he got when he dove on his way back home. Sure, that's powerful. I think that was, that was, you know, that was quite emotional because, I mean, how do you stand there, you know, with all these people throwing things at, at Abongili, burning him, kicking him? Some of the videos even had, had people kicking his head. It's I horrific. Jeez. It's just a devastating tragedy. Yeah. And I really hope that we, we don't see an increase in these mm. mob justice attacks, which are provoked by increasing violence in these spaces, increasing distrust mm. in the police, communities feeling that unless they take things into their own hands, nothing's, nothing's going to change. So I really hope that police can step up to the plate and that we don't see any more of these heinous, heinous crimes. Lisa Lee, can you just update us on information with regards to suspects and arrests and where we're standing in terms of any court dates at the moment? So I spoke to Station Commander of Grassy Park, Colonel Dawood Lang, and um, as of Thursday evening, about 14 people have been detained um, regarding the murder of Abu Ghile. 
I then he then also made mention that uh, there were more arrests if expected to be made, and that Friday morning they would then continue making more arrests um, regarding this incident. He also said that those that have been detained will then appear at the Weinberg Magistrates Court on Monday, and they will be charged on robbery, murder, and defeating the ends of ends of justice. So right now the the case is still ongoing. There's still a, a lot of investigation that needs to be done, but for now that is that is what the, the update that. Um, police have provided us with. It sounds like they have things somewhat under control and that justice is soon to be served. Which is exactly what the family are wanting, yes. Thank you so much for your time, Lisa. That was Lisa Lee Solomons, reporter for News 24. We're now joined by Lizette Lancaster from the Institute for Security Studies, who works in the Justice and Violence Prevention Program. Good morning, Lizette. Thank you for joining us. Good morning. What socioeconomic or even political motives provoke mob justice attacks in a South African context? Vigilantism happens when individuals or groups feel increasingly unsafe due to rising crime levels, made worse by a growing belief that the police are unwilling or unable to get on top of crime. These attacks also happen in many communities across the country, especially where crime is particularly rife and trust in the police is low. In some crime hotspots, vigilantism has become an intergenerational phenomenon that developed due to conditions under colonial and apartheid governments where the police were not there to protect and serve communities. That's very interesting. Are we seeing an increase in these attacks? I read a very interesting article published by the Daily Maverick in May that said doctors in trauma units are seeing an increase in violent injuries linked to vigilante attacks. It is difficult to say conclusively that vigilantism is on the increase simply because we do not have the data to support such claims. However, the Social Attitudes Survey undertaken by the Human Research Council shows that trust in policing is at an all-time low at only 27% of South Africans still having confidence in the police. This might be linked to the perceived increase in vigilantism. We also know from the police's own crime statistics when they release information about who gets murdered, why they get murdered, that in cases where they can identify motives, that as much as many as 15% of murders can be attributed to vigilantism. So although it might be on the increase, we don't have the data, but we do know that a substantial number of murders can be attributed to vigilantism and so to also attempted murders and assaults. When you hear of some of the horrific crimes that happen in South Africa and how low our conviction rate is, one can almost empathize with communities sometimes reacting in this way. But what are the very real consequences of vigilantism? The danger of vigilantism is that vigilantes themselves become criminals. These groups often do not hesitate to use violence and, and fear to get their way. And innocent people and even communities are then at risk of harm. These groups become emboldened and then feel that they are an alternative form of government. And very often they then rule with this fear. 
in this instance, the man who was killed was innocent and no kidnapping cases have been reported to the local police station in the area, which is very suspicious. So it's just another life lost. He also had a family. And so it's very sad because it, it, it's almost a self-sustaining cycle of violence in the end. In many communities, people organize themselves and work with community policing forums to help the police. In most cases, suspects are apprehended, but then handed over to the police to, to have um, justice be done. The problem comes in when community members cross the line by dishing out punishment. And what we see is that we have a complete failure of procedural justice in that very often innocent people can become the victims of vigilantism. And also, life is tough in South Africa at the moment especially in poorer communities. And you get this feeling that it's almost, you know, a way of frustrated people sort of just releasing frustration onto victims in a sense that they believe have done something wrong. And, and it's, it's a lot of anger being expressed, which one can understand given the circumstances that a lot of people are living in. But what, what role does the justice system play in this? We have the police on one side, but then we have the justice system, the court proceedings, etc. Where is that playing a role in these vigilante attacks? There's a growing feeling of helplessness that um, the law is not on the side of victims of violence. Of course, in communities where people have resources, they often employ alternative forms of protection, such as private security, who are then quite well versed in apprehending criminals and also bringing them to book and helping the police to prepare cases to take to the National Prosecuting Authority for prosecution. However, in poorer communities or disadvantaged communities, uh, the police often cannot apprehend um, the, the suspects and the cases are often not strong enough to make it to court. Even if they do make it to court, very often people are released on bail and that then perpetuates the, the sort of belief that the criminal justice system is not serving communities because they see the same criminals or perpetrators back in the community often said to be the next day. So cases also are extremely drawn out um, and very often get scrapped from the role because of a lack of evidence. Um, often we also know that where cases are referred back to the police for further investigations, those cases don't make it further or back to court. Thank you for joining us, Lizette. That was Lizette Lancaster from the Institute for Security Studies, who works in the Justice and Violence Prevention Program. That's all we have time for this week. I'm Amy Gibbings, producer and host of The Stories. Join us next Saturday for a discussion on the week's biggest stories.